Hi, and welcome to the Mark McSee Supersonic Food Marketing Podcast. Every week, we will talk to the great, the good, and the legendary from the worlds of food, drink, marketing, and business to help give you the advice that will really help your brand boom. A huge thanks to our headline sponsors, the award-winning Engage Interactive. Engage Interactive have been helping hospitality businesses like yours prepare for a mobile and digital first world since 2007. From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. So we're in the middle of September and there's not much to report actually in terms of being out and about. Uh, I guess the other day I went out with Paul Pavley and also Dav who runs a great pizza restaurant down here called Fato Amano and also is part of Unbarred Brewery who will be getting nationally famous very, very soon. So keep your eyes on them. We did a little bit of a pub crawl going around Brighton and Hove, and it was just interesting to see the measures that were in place, and everyone did a pretty good job, but all very, very different. A lot of issues, I thought, were on the app side of things, though, so definitely some work to be done there, because after all, your app is probably your most important member of staff at the moment, so quite interesting to see how that goes. But a world away from Brighton, and we're heading down to the south coast today to talk to an absolute rock star, and that is Mitch Tonks, who is the CEO of Rockfish. If you've not heard of Mitch, you'll really enjoy this episode. Just a warm and welcoming, really experienced but humble man, and I loved every second of our chat, and I really, really, really want to jet down and get to see him very soon for a nice glass of rosé and some fabulous seafood. It's a really enjoyable chat, really insightful, and just one of those ones where Someone has created this brand and created this culture and this company and actually this imprint on the British food scene just by being himself and also leading with the heart and not leading with textbooks or business management or anything like that. So we talk about a lot today, we cover an awful lot, but we talk about how Mitch and the team have seen and handled COVID so far. We go back to Mitch's beginnings of being a rock and roll fishmonger in Bath, and we look forward to how Rockfish is going to thrive in the future, touching wood, as I say that, what we really hope it does, using the lessons learned from COVID, the dream team that surrounds Mitch, everyone involved in the business, and also his years and years of hospitality experience. So it gives me the most rock and roll pleasure ever to introduce my celebrity guest today. Very special guest. I've got Mitch Tonks, who is the CEO of Rockfish. Hello. Hey, Mark. How are you? Very good. Very good. So... Thanks so much for spending the time today doing this. Um, obviously, I've known about you for many years. We haven't chatted much. Um, and then we were introduced by Dave Strauss. So that was very kind of him doing that. And no doubt we'll get him on at some point. But I'd have a warning that it'll be a pretty dour affair. Uh, <laughs> He's known for his misery, Dave. And, um, but you know what? His um, He is... Uh, He's one of the best guys in the industry, honestly. He's, he's been a, he's been a breath of fresh air to um, to have working for us. So I think it's been nearly it's been a couple of years, and um, it, it was Will 
um, Will Beckett, my chairman, you know, we, we were looking around for somebody to join us in that role. And he said, have you thought about Dave Strauss? He's, he's leaving Burger and Lobster. And I was like, oh, well, that'd be interesting. Let's, let's, let's kind of have a conversation. And uh, so Dave, I think, was the MD at the time there. And uh, so I agreed to meet him. I sort of said, send me a CV, Dave, you know, something down, you know, which is, I thought I ought to appear a little professional and ask him <laughs> information. And he just sent me an email saying, like, here it is. This is what, this is what I do, right? And it was one of those brilliantly written emails. It was almost a bit kitchen confidential, like in, in the way it was written about this. This is what I've done. This is what I do. And uh, I don't know why, but I was expecting Dave to kind of walk in in a suit. You know, he's this operations guy. He's coming down for, um, you know, this interview and it's going to be cool. And in walks Dave, who fortunately is shorter than me with a beard and no hair and a T-shirt and a bag over his back. And we just bonded instantly and had dinner. And just I just loved the way he talked about restaurants and the real nitty gritty about running them, you know, the stuff that everybody overlooks, that stats bury, that, you know, he really cares about things like, he'll phone me up and say, have you ever washed any of those uh, ramekins that you use? No, he said, they're a pain in the ass. He said, you know, you spray water in and they get, they cover the KPs in water. He said, it takes them ages. Why don't we just change them for something disposable? And like those one, that little thing, yeah, just, yeah. you know, all of a sudden we're not wasting stuff, you know, we, we was, we used them for no real point. It was just like, just get something to put on the plate to put the sauces in. And, and now we're doing something different. But that's Dave. He just loves those little details. Great man. <laughs> well, I guess we could do, you know, Arsenal through the years. Maybe we could do that as a podcast or something like that. Yeah. Might bring him more misery. I don't know. It'd be a short podcast, isn't it? Because, I mean, you know, he wouldn't even say a lot. He'd, he'd grunt every now and then. But he'd be a good chap to have on, that's for sure. Yeah. Come on. I've had Will uh, Beckett on before. So that was that was a really good chat. It was excellent, you know. So I think he's the first one of this series. So that was that was great fun. So I was going to take you back a wee bit um, in the, the X Factor journey style. Um, you know, just to talk about your background and, and how you get into hospitality and you know and how you've ended up to, to where you are today. So what happened there? Well, I'll give you I'll give you a potted history. I, I I grew up in a place called Western Supermare and um I was always out fishing, water skiing, you know, playing around on the beach when I was a kid. And I was fascinated by fish. And my grandmother, um, you know, I used to go down to the um, fishmongers, which is called McFisheries. They used to be uh, these fishmongers all over England. And uh, we used to go down there and get brown shrimps, crabs, gurnards, those kind of things. And, and I would sit with her and peel them, dress crabs, mussels. And all. It, was, it was kind of in life, seafood, really. And, um, and, and I was, you know, I loved cooking, but I was never really got into restaurants. I sort of left school and went into building and, you know, I just wanted to earn money rather than train. And, uh, and I ended up working in, uh, in, in London for a, a small Jewish clothing company. And in the end, I realized that it wasn't going to be for me. And it, it, it was 1996. And Henrietta Green had written a book called The Food Lover's Guide to Britain. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, I was interested in food. I used to read the Sunday papers. And I remember picking up this book. And there were all these wonderful things in there. And, uh, and Bath just had a cheese shop. And it had a butcher's. And I thought, I'm going to open a fishmonger's. I, I, I'm going to do this amazing thing there. It's going to be like Harrods. It's going to be awesome. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking at fishmongers around Chiswick and around um, around the country, really. And they were just kind of like boring places, you know, guy with a white coat on, selling cotton haddock, smelly old place, nothing brilliant. And I thought, no, I'm going to make this amazing. So I opened this uh, fish shop in Bath called The Fish Market, went down to Cornwall, worked with a guy down there called John, John Strike for a week who put me on the in the right direction. I just totally loved it. And... I was buying in whole tuna, huge halibut, swordfish, sharks, you know, wild salmon off the River Wye. I mean, it was brilliant. I mean, I queues down the street. And I found myself just sort of telling people how to cook fish. I was reading Cooking Henry, um, Jane Grigson at home and Elizabeth David, and I would just give people cooking advice. And then uh, I had a space above the restaurant and uh, above the shop rather. And I wasn't doing that well, um, but I was doing okay. 
and I actually decided to open a restaurant up there and uh, I, I took some counsel from local restaurateurs and they said to me, you know, opening a restaurant on the first floor is a really bad thing to do, especially above a smelly fish shop. And I was like, but that is the point of it, right? It's above yeah, a yes. smelly fish shop and it's the whole point. And so I opened this restaurant and just jumped in cooking and I was just doing simple things, grilled red mullet, rosemary and you know, lovely salads and simple things, but everything was just beautifully fresh, you know, and, and that was it. And we built up a really great following and um, it, it went really well. And then somebody persuaded me that, you know, it's a big lesson that I should open some more and uh, because they're so successful and why wouldn't I? So we raised some money and we opened uh, one in Bristol, one in uh, Christchurch and things started to go really well. Then we opened one in Chiswick, you know, at the time I, I thought, um, Chiswick was central London you know I just yeah. found a restaurant up there my, my literary agent was up there and I was doing a bit of TV at the time and it was you know early days so this was around about 2003 the food industry and restaurant industry wasn't like it is now and um, and Chiswick was just uh, just such a huge success mm. and but I was really doing it by the skin of my teeth I mean you know some fun stories in there you know we I, I was short paying the builders you know at that time and you know I didn't have enough money to finish the project and bung 20 grand on a horse called earth mover and, and, and the horse uh, the horse um, lost oh, it was like one of those one of those dire moments are we ever going to get the restaurant open and when we got it open uh, it just exceeded all expectations if we thought we were going to take x we took y and you know we had a nine and a half out of ten in the uh, the telegraph and it was it was real seat of the pants stuff and we had amazing clientele coming in and uh, and it was great you know people couldn't believe that you could have a fish counter around a restaurant uh, together and uh, and they really loved it and so somebody persuaded me that we should open more and we floated the company on aim uh, to raise some money and it was a, it was a really difficult thing um you know once you're running restaurants in the uh, public markets environment uh, everything changes and the focus goes from you know what you're doing every day to what you're making and share price and all that kind of thing anyway cut a long story short um, we opened a restaurant on the fifth floor of Harvey Nichols on the day of the July 7 bombings. And uh, as you can imagine, the restaurant failed and we, it cost a huge amount of money. We never really got back on our feet. And I left the business and, and moved down here. And um, I, uh, in fact, I was already living here. I was already living here. And, uh, and we opened a, um, a restaurant called The Seahorse. And uh, I went back to the stoves cooking with uh, Matt Price, who is worked with me all the way through uh, the Fishworks, um, starting off as my first head chef in Bristol, and um, brilliant chef, and really, really great mate. And so he's been with me the whole journey. And, uh, and we built the Seahorse, and and then, you know, we've got nine kids between us. He's got four, I've got five. What do you mean? And we were just, you know, talking about, you know, where can you go and eat? You know, I mean, it's like, <clears throat> it's difficult to take your kids anywhere in those days, 10 years ago, apart from a grotty old, um, you know, pub with a back room. Yeah. So we decided to open a fish restaurant that, you know, would fill between a seafood restaurant and a chippy. And uh, it kind of started off as a chippy, but gradually it kind of moved into that. And, and that's how Rockfish really developed. And now we're, we're nine restaurants and uh, we're, we're privately funded. And uh, we're never going to go back to those public markets. And we think every day about how we can make those restaurants really amazing. And we think every day about our little ecosystem of suppliers and staff and, uh, and everything else. But it's been a, a magical journey. And, yeah. um, you know, when we, in those heady, those early heady days, we won all sorts of awards, best London restaurant and all sorts of things, but restaurateur of the year. I mean, it was, it was brilliant. 
and um, but but you know, good to be here now. From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. Hey, it's Lucy here from Toggle, the newest member of the team. This time of year is all about gifting, and after a challenging year, Toggle wants to support the gift of hospitality. There are all sorts of opportunities available on the platform, from your standard digital and physical gift cards, to Gusto Italian's Taste of Italy experience, or Revolution's Christmas gift set, or even the brilliant Pay It Forward feature. And it can be made so much easier this year with the first £1,000 of sales completely on us. Just visit usetoggle.com and learn more. And just with the fish work stuff, whereabouts were you in Chiswick? Because that, that was the first place I lived in London. Uh, we were in um, um, Turnham Green Terrace. So oh, yeah. I think I think Sophie's restaurant is there now. But um, yeah. it was uh, I bought it. It used to be an Italian restaurant, and uh, I, it was really funny how I how I got there. I was dining with my literary agent, and um, I, I was looking around this place. I had a little garden. I thought, God, this would be an amazing you know fish restaurant. And so she said, well, I know the owner, Aldo. Why don't, you, why don't you ask him if he wants to sell it? So he came over and started chatting. I said, do you want to sell the restaurant? He said, funny enough, I do. And um, so we exchanged emails <coughs> and, you know, I had to go and find money and uh, all the rest of it. He was brilliant in helping us do the deal. He really loved the enthusiasm that I had to try and make something work. And he, he really helped me out as well. And, uh, and that's how we did it. And that was how the first one started. And it, it was unbelievable. You know, it really was a, a great time in my life, I think. Very exciting. And the Harvey Nichols thing, I mean, that was kind of difficult. Were you sushi there? Yeah, Yo Sushi was there. What we, what we were going to open, well, what we did open was um, a really beautiful fish counter with a planter behind it. At the time, I was spending a fair bit of um, time in Barcelona, you know, sort of researching restaurants and um, menus and fish markets and supplies. And I loved sitting around in the Boccaria, just, you know, people plant, plantering seafood and sitting there at the bar. Yeah. So we, we built this beautiful um, glass counter with a fabulous fish display behind it and a shelf on the front of it so you could sit and eat while looking at the display and lobster tanks behind. And I'm sure if it was there today, it would be a phenomenal success, but it lasted about a month yeah. because nobody went to Harvey Nichols' top floor of a department store after the, after the bombings was a no-go area, really. Yeah. And, um, and we had a big rent to pay and, uh, and everything else. So we just couldn't make it work, unfortunately. It's a shame. Ahead of its time. Um, it was ahead of its time, yeah. I mean, you know, and I think what was interesting when I look back is that it was quite pioneering times. There, there wasn't all the cloud-based systems that you have now to be able to operate multiple restaurants. And also, I, I sort of think to myself, I didn't know anything about running multiple restaurants. Mm. What I had was incredible energy and passion and an amazing team around me that could make stuff happen. And it taught me an awful lot about how you create amazing culture amongst a business because we had the most amazing culture and we could do anything. It was really brilliant. But of course, once you've created 13 restaurants, then, and you're amongst a backdrop of a changing market and we're opening them quickly because we promised the stock market we would do certain things, you then realize that you're going at a pace beyond that, that really is sustainable. Um, you know, restaurants need time to establish themselves and, uh, you know, and work. But we learned so much. It was, it was, it was great. No, it's a big deal that and a big lesson. And I think the ones that have opened slower may have seemed foolish, you know, like your hook smells and your the shrooms and all that, but they seem to be sort of winning. But I remember, I think I saw Jamie Oliver talking about it or someone commenting on it. And, you know, it went from him being there and being in the restaurant and, you know, absolutely hand-picking and making sure the right person was in. But once you get to, you know, restaurant 38, and, you know, all of a sudden it's 
Jamie won't be there, he'll be there by video. And, it, you know, it, you can see how it happens. I mean, that pressure of, of, of going public or indeed, you know, private investment is hard, you know, if you've got the, the PEs involved, you know. Yeah, I think the problem is, is that you that look at all those kind of places and, you know, we, we were on the verge of it too. You actually stop becoming restaurants. I think, you you know, what, for me, a definition of a restaurant is something that has a point to it in a community. Yeah. And it provides something for the community and it's a destination for people outside of the community and, and, and everybody likes to go there to celebrate, have conversation and enjoy. It's got some kind of um, spiritual need uh, amongst it all. And I think when you're opening restaurants, you kid yourselves that really what they are by that point are just stage sets. Yeah. And, uh, and I think this whole period has, has taught us an awful lot about authenticity and being real. And indeed, it's at the heart of everything, every little detail, I think. I mean, you know, I've got an amazing team and I know that they think I'm an absolute pain in the ass because there are, you know, there, there, are, there are details that, you know, the height of a bar or uh, the height of a unit or the, or the positioning of something in the kitchen or, or, or the taste of something on the menu or, or the point of why we're doing a service step, all those things we, we all ponder over. And, uh, and I, I'm usually the gatekeeper of, you know, I'm afraid these are the red lines that we can't cross because these are integral. They might make it, it might make it harder, but, but actually that's, that's who we are. And um, I think that's really important. The same, the same way we deal with our people. And then starting off Rockfish then, so what about things like the name, the gap in the market, the concept, you know, doing fish and chips better than most, you know, all that kind of thing. You know, what, what were you thinking? You know, were you concerned about getting into that or you're just dead sure that this was going to be a winner? No, I mean, like anything, you, I think as an entrepreneur, you approach things with this, you know, this ability to kind of vision something. And then in my mind, it already exists. And so yeah, I just sort of work backwards from it. And I was sat on table one in the seahorse with the laptop. And I was just thinking, we're we going to call this thing. And a few people saying, why don't you call it this that, and the other? And none of them really kind of stuck with me. And I just thought, I just need a really kind of funky fish name. And I can't remember what I typed in. And, you know, I just sort of thought, it's rockfish. That's what it is. It's rockfish. That's, that's what it is. So I'm calling it rockfish and, and that's what's going to happen. And the idea at the time was, uh, the very initial idea, we kind of built this beach shack inside the restaurant. And we were doing like a takeaway inside, outside. So you, you would, there'd be no plates. You'd eat in boxes and you'd have lots of fried fish. And we got a cooking range in. We went to a few chippies. And, but really, I, I didn't want to be a fish and chip restaurant. But in a way, that's kind of what I was creating. Yeah. Um, and so we started off from that perspective and it was really interesting because the first couple of days in the town people were saying oh Mitch we love your new place but sort your chips out because we, we didn't make our own chips and we were buying in um, chilled ones and they, they, they were great when they were first cooked but not afterwards and it, just, it got me really depressed I was like I can't get anywhere in the town without anyone saying you know our chips are bad so we started making our own chips and and then I realized that you know what, people can't come to this restaurant three times a week because it's fried fish. Everything, everything on the menu is fried with a few pots of cockles. Yeah. So we started putting planches in and uh, char grills over the years and evolving the menu. And still we do, I think we do incredibly good, brilliant fish and chips. But I always, you know, feel slightly offended when people say, how's your fish and chip restaurants? Because they're, yeah. they're not fish and chip restaurants in the traditional sense of the word. I think there's some masters like the Mayflower and the, the sorry, the Magpie and in, and then the Whitby restaurants, they are traditional British fish and chip restaurants, which are amazing. And the fact that we do fry fish doesn't make us one of them. They, they, they are Coleman's. All those guys are just brilliant up there at, at being traditional. We're, we're kind of more sit, trying to sit in the middle of the Seahorse and Sheikis and Scots and all the brilliant top end seafood restaurants. And, uh, and then you've got the chippies at the other end of the market. We kind of want to be in the middle where you can have grilled fish, lobsters, fish and chips. It's, it's that place where you can bring your family yeah. And, and and enjoy 
great seafood, you know. And the point to it was, you know, gradually as it grew over the years was, I always felt that, you know, people would say, your fish tastes so amazing, what is it? And the bit that, was, that I thought was different about our fish was, A, we you know, buying off the market every morning, but the 24 hours in a van that takes it to a city somewhere, in my mind, changes it. I don't know what it is, but it changes it. And I think that that whole thing about seafood is you just need to kind of sit by the sea, eat it, and in your mind relate to the fact that it comes from here. Yeah. And it's, it's invisible, but, but it is really what eating seafood is all about. So, you know, the whole plan was to open seafood restaurants by the sea in view of, in view of the sea. And that's what we do. And, and now we kind of, you know, we've, we've got our own fish business where we, we buy the fish on the market, we have our own filleters, we deliver it to our restaurants every day. And we have uh, an investment in a fishing boat. So we have a fishing boat landing to us, you know, a couple of times a week, which is, makes things even more complicated and difficult um, because you can't just tell it what you want. You have to work with what it catches. Yeah. And, uh, but we've got a brilliant young skipper on there. Um, and he's very progressive, just wants to do some really good stuff. And we, we're trying to work hard to make the economics of that boat work yeah. and, uh, and be sustainable. So that's kind of the journey as to where, we, where we've got to. And as, as part of that, you know, Matt's with me. Uh, Dave joined us. Laura, who is our communications director now, was, was my PA in 1920, no, 20, 20 years ago. And uh, gradually over the years, just built up some amazing marketing contacts and knows this business inside out, knows me and how I operate inside out. And so she runs communications now for the business, which is uh, you know, a hugely important part of, of what we do because we need to tell people, we need to get people eating more fish. That's it. Well, I, I think it's such a nice gateway drug, though. You know, in the fact that you know you're you're not inaccessible, you know. So, you know, going in at the fish and chips level and then working your way up is mm-hmm. is like quite a nice thing. Because I remember when we were opening your sushis, for example, and Glasgow was the best one. So I stood outside and I'm going, wait till we see what people are saying. And it was like raw fish. Don't be so get away from there. Like pulling their kids, going get away from there. We're going to McDonald's. <laughs> it's just like oh. I can imagine it. Um, but, you know, it, it's quite a nice way that, you know, you're not too um, sort of alienating or anything like that because there are a lot of people that just draw a line and say, that's not for me. But it feels like you could actually have quite a great discovery experience. You know, the, the more and more that you go, you'll be tempted to try different things. Yeah, because I, th- I think the thing is, is that, you know, we, we've got a few core dishes that we, that we always do. But the one thing that makes rockfish so different is down the side of the tablecloth. We have... Um, it's a paper tablecloth on the tables yeah. and there are 20 different species written down on the side and the waiter every day will come over and describe and circle the fish and price it every day that we've got. So we might have some turbot steaks some lobster, some whiting fillet, might have some fresh langoustines in and, and, and it explains to you what they are and all the descriptions of those particular fish are on the table so that if you're not familiar with what a langoustine tastes like or whiting tastes like, it's there to help you. Yeah. And, um, and you have it grilled or fried or we, we'll actually dictate we think, what we think the best way with a whiting fillet is fried and, and, and with a turbot steak, we're going to roast that with butter and lemon. Um, and, and that's how it works. And it gives people the whole sense of, you know, they've got the menu there. Um, but actually, they, they quite like this excitement of, you know, what is it that I'm going to see today that I didn't see last time? And it's always moving. And I think that's the joy of a, of a fish restaurant is the, is the unknown. Yeah. And, you know, when, when we get it wrong, you know, it might be that at the end of a service, we've got two fish left. I mean, people are really cross with us. You know, I've come all the way here because that's the other point with seafood. People will take a drive to yeah. go and eat seafood somewhere and they get there and there's some hake or some skate left and they're, they're quite cross, you know, and, uh, but that's, 
that's what we have to kind of cope with and work with when you're working with something so so fresh and you know and in demand i mean i've been doing over the last year or so some work with riddling fins down here in, in brighton and i think that a that intrinsic link with the sea is perfect and it gives you so much content so much authenticity so much stuff to talk about you know rather than being you know in the middle of milton Keynes or whatever you know you just can't be authentic like that and i think also you know it was being able to see the, the people's different mindsets of going all the way to you know, potentially more scarier things that, you know, oysters and all that, that, that divide people um, into those things that, you know, just sort of bring them in and being that sort of friendly, we're here for you, we'll, we'll hold your hand during it. Sort of um, so, yeah, so it, it, it's, it's really exciting. And I think fish as well is just something in seafood. A lot of people just don't want to cook it in the house. And I think one of the best things is, something that you don't replicate at home and that's why so many italian restaurants and you know all the rest of it you can replicate a lot of that at home but there's something really special i think about having great seafood out you know there is and also it's about trust mark i think as well so you go to steins or shiki's or scott's or nathan Aitrell, you trust it immediately i mean two of those restaurants are on the coast but even the city ones you trust it because of the incredible skill and history behind the high the restaurants but if you walked into some nondescript restaurant on the, on, the, on the side of a road somewhere and you know it's in the middle of a city and they were selling oysters and lobsters and crabs you, you, you probably might feel a little nervous about it so i think i think trust comes into uh, eating seafood an awful lot and i think being by the sea is that kind of rubber stamp of this is going to be cool this is going to be great and that's why i think we're seeing so many uh, amazing little fish shacks um around the country just uh, just opening up and have been open for a long time. Fishermen that have, um, you know, realised that uh, as catches get smaller, prices get squeezed, the cost of fishing going up, that they open places so they can sell their crab and their lobster and, you know, cook simply. And, and that's the beauty of it. But I think the very best fish restaurants are the ones that say, here's a crab, here's some mayonnaise, and we smashed it open, here's a napkin, enjoy yourself. Yeah, and yeah. one of my favourite little places called the Anchorstone in, in a little place called Ditsum nearby up the River Dart. And one of my favourite days out is to, to take a small boat. You know, I, I go and anchor my boat up there and go ashore. There's a pub there for a few pints. And then you go and sit, o- sit over the road and crack a crab and drink some rosé all afternoon. And it's just like, it's the best thing in the world. Yeah. And uh, it, it doesn't need to be fancy or fussy. It's just, it is what it is. And, um, you know, sourcing the right stuff is, is, the, is the key. Hi, Alex from Engage here, and thanks for tuning in to the Supersonic Marketing Podcast. Each week, we'll be bringing you a great tip to supercharge your own digital marketing, and this week's comes from Shri, a head of SEO, who gives his expert insight into dealing with seasonality. As we're all acutely aware, seasonality is a big part of the hospitality industry. We want to continually attract customers around key events every year. Think Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, and Christmas. Ideally, we want to be found for these terms every year, but we often see that these pages aren't set up correctly. The key is to use the same URL every single year and simply update the content. Don't create new pages each time and avoid using the year in your URL. So the URL slow for Valentine's would be Valentine's Day instead of Valentine's Day 2020, to give an example. You should still mention the year in the content title and description to capture those search queries though. If you do need to archive seasonal content, then move the old content to a new URL, Valentine's Day 2019, for example. This will keep the focus on your main page that you want to rank. If you need help getting your brand more visible online and the edge on your competition, simply head over to engageinteractive.co.uk forward slash podcast. 
where you can see how we've helped some of the UK's most ambitious and successful hospitality brands with their own high-performance digital marketing strategies. Cheers, and enjoy the rest of the episode. And what about the seahorse side of things? Because, you know, your social media is really making me want to go. Um, you've kind of ha- you've got me at Rosie. You know, just even the beautiful bottle of Rosie will sell a, a million tables, I'm sure. But, you know, what's the differences then between that and, and, and Rockfish? You know, how would you explain it to someone? Well, so Seahorse is, um, <clears throat> I think it's um, a life's work, really. I mean, I, my, my sort of inspiration in, in restaurant life comes from historic places, places like Sostanza, Harris Bar, E Bologna in, um, in Piemonte, those, those kind of old places that have just been around for years where the Patron's been there for a long time, El Testieri, Gattoniera in Venice. You know, I could go on about these, these lovely restaurants. And I wanted, for the Seahorse, um, we wanted to create this this institution that was going to be there a long time after we were we were gone and we wanted to create a way of life out of it rather than just just a restaurant so when we built it we had all the furniture handmade and you know everything was really wonderful about it and we set about cooking seafood in an Italian way over an open fire and I think we were we were one of the very first people 12 years ago to be cooking over an open fire now it's Everybody has an open fire even before a stove these days. And I remember having the fire officer in and telling him we were going to have an open fire. And the fire officer looking at me and saying, what above these flats? And, and he wouldn't actually allow us to do it. So we went and bought a, a Josper oven, and, uh, which, we, we, which we mastered and really made work for us. And, uh, but because it was self-contained, he was happy. So that was the journey of, um, of how the sequel started. And we created this rhythm there, which was, it was our way of life. Matt and I did every shift. And uh, for the first several years, we, we would sit down, we'd eat together, we'd finish work late at night, I'd get the ferry over, we'd be back in the morning, we'd have a grapper or a brandy together and a coffee and we'd work out the next menu and, and that was it. And then we, our first employee was a guy called Jake, who was straight from college. And um, Jake worked alongside uh, Matt and I through the whole thing. And now Jake is the head chef. And he's learned the ways of the seagulls, the way we do things, the, the way things have to be at the seagulls, the the, the behind-the-scenes organisation, the, the sort of madness that creeps in when the dining room's full of people and how it can just go off into a kind of, you know, two o'clock in the morning party and, you know, it's just 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 can happen if you get the right people in there. And then we had another young lad join us from college who's been with us six years and um, or maybe, maybe more, six or seven, and he's sous chef there. He's absolutely brilliant. Matt and I haven't been in the kitchen. You know, I, I still guide the food, but we haven't been in the kitchen for a few years now. And uh, so I still offer a lot of inspiration and guide the menus and bring ideas and thoughts back. Um, and we mentor these guys. And my son joined the business. Uh, he's been in and out of the business, but joined the business about a year and a half ago. Ben, he's a, he's a great chef too. And my daughter, Isabel, uh, she's been in the business two years. She's 18 now. She's been in the business front of house. And Ben's girlfriend is coming to work there. So we're kind of creating this, I feel like this, this kind of, this family restaurant this place that is is as it is and you know we ponder about every single detail in there and and it's not a food mecca we don't we don't want it to be a place that you come and you eat things and think oh my god this is just nuts it's it's just a beautiful place to come and sit down and have some amazingly good grilled fish some lovely pastas some lovely cured meats some favorite timeless italian dishes and and some simple ones with a great wine list and and also since we first opened we opened Joe's Bar was named after a very, very dear friend of mine who, who sadly died um, suddenly with his wife uh, of an illness. And so we named um, Joe's Bar after, uh, after Joe, 
because he was such a great guy. And uh, Joe was a huge fan of, uh, it's just kind of like one of those lovely stories about the Seahorse, of which there are many. Um, Joe was a great Jeff Beck fan and uh, the guitarist. And, um, you know, he, he took us to concerts, you know, we, his funeral, we played his music. And when we opened Joe's bar, uh, Jeff Beck was the very first person to walk in that bar and order a martini. No. Yeah. And uh, so Jeff signed a menu and he's been back and since cooked with us and we opened our private dining room, which was, uh, which is really great. Wow. And, um, and he's, he's a customer of the restaurant, but, but I just love that that can happen. That if you create something, those ley lines of life can cross and, uh, and happen. And, uh, and there are, lot, there are lots of um, very beautiful stories about that dining room, you know, friendships that have bonded, chefs that have cooked with us, uh, nights that have happened. Um, it's just been it's just an amazing place. It really is. I'm stunned by that. And what, like, had you invited them down? Or yeah. just, it happened, like serendipity? It just happened, ser- serendipity. And, um, and it was just one of those, uh, one of those things. And, well, that um, would get you, wouldn't it? That would, like, so emotional, like, thinking that that what's yeah. the chances of that well it's not i mean that's the you know that was one of the most beautiful things and uh jeff signed this menu saying you know sorry we missed each other and uh, i had i had met jeff previously you know coming to the restaurant but i didn't know yeah. he was coming that day and um and it was real cool you know it was uh it was a bit rock and roll it was quite nice and very rock and roll what, what was jeff back then was he in the yardbirds uh yardbirds and oh, yeah. uh I think Jeff Beck band. I can't remember. Yeah, it's um, Clapton, though, right? Yeah, Clapton. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's he's a great guy and um, yeah. really uh, really smashing. And um, you know, as I say, when it, every time he's down, he comes to the restaurant with a great friend of mine, uh, Pete Richardson, who who comes to the restaurant an awful lot. The old comic strip presents director. And oh yeah, he's great lad. So they're they're good friends and they're coming together, which is nice. Um, but on that one day, it was just uh, it was unannounced and 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 there it happened. But. We've had so many wonderful stories uh, at the Seahorse. I feel it's it's created um, its own history. You know, yeah. for people for guests, people feel like it's their restaurant, and they come in and just have that check, that classic Seahorse check, which is the roasted scallops, the monkfish for two, the courgette free tea, and a bottle of tonics that me and Hixie make, or something else. And that is a classic Seahorse check that they come for, and yeah. uh, and we love that. And I, and I think that's great about a restaurant that you love to know that before you even get there, you're going to have that thing. Yeah. And I think that if you get to that restaurant and they suddenly haven't got it on the menu and it's all a bit kind of strange, then it suddenly stops becoming the place. And I, I don't mind that. I don't, I don't need the restaurant to be exciting and changing every day. I just yeah. want it to be, you know, there. Right. That's just, I mean, Dave's always saying to me, he's like, you've got to go down, you've got to go down. So yeah, at some point we'll, we'll definitely come down. Come down, Mark. Yeah, it's yeah. a good Love it's, to. Uh, it's good, but the talent, you know, I think what's really special about it is that Jake and Tits, as we call him, Sue Chef and Ben, uh, they're about to sort of, you know, we always wondered who would carry on our work, you know, Matt and I say, who would carry this on after us? And um, and they are carrying our work. And, you know, we've had that conversation with them that is, you know, this isn't a job. This is this is a lifestyle. Think about before you take this role on and before you you, you go into the next decade. You know, we're never going to have those conversations about, I'm giving you a month's notice. Yeah. This, this, is, this is you guys taking over and your guardians for the next period of time until we, until we have other people behind you. And that's how they see their jobs. And that's how they see their, their part in it. Yeah. And, uh, and that is, um, you know, uh, for me, makes it incredibly special. Yeah, that's a lovely thing. That's a lovely thing. And yeah. then I was thinking about, you know, the, the community side of things, you know, for both 
seahorse and and for for rockfish as well and you know a lot of people just pay lip service to restaurants being part of the community and you, you've touched on it already but you know what do you, you know what do you do that's so different you know in terms of being part of the community because as i say lots of people see it but doing one charity day a year to paint a fence isn't really it i don't think no i think i kind of it sort of started off in, uh, in dartmouth really in the seahorse thinking you know, we need people to feel like this is the town's dining room. This yeah. is the place that you come and have a simple lunch, an extravagant lunch, a cheap bottle, an expensive bottle to celebrate, to commiserate, to fall in love, to fall out of love, all of those things. And we need to be part of people's lives. And we started doing things like, I mean, I, I love sailing. There was a young sailor called Henry Bombay who uh, was 19 at the time. And he was sailing a little boat called a Contessa 26. And um, I said to him in the marina one day, what, what are you doing, Henry, with, with your boat? He said, I'm going to sail it around Britain. And I was like, wow, that's, that's, that's like an amazing thing to do. Yeah. And he told me he was raising some money. So we threw a few lunches and we sort of said, look, everyone pays whatever it was, 20 quid, and we'll give 15 of it straight to this guy to, you know. Um, and the, these lunches were hugely well supported. Henry um, uh, then uh, was able to sail around Britain. And we then continued to support Henry for about four or five years. And Henry was in the last Volvo race and sailed around the world with the Caffrey. So it's been amazing to support him all the way through his career over the years. And he's been a great ambassador for Rockfish and for the Seals. But it kind of stopped me, th- started me thinking about the good things we can do. So we, we started putting, in the Seals we don't do it, but in Rockfish we put a pound on each bill. Mm-hmm. And then we put some money to it. And then we start giving it to small charities that uh, just don't have a real chance of fundraising very easily so in Brixham for argument's sake there's a group called Pride in Brixham who just go around painting railings planting plants fixing things up that the council don't do and making beautiful features and it's wonderful to to, to give those guys money and we've given them about 20 grand and they're like the stuff that they're able to do for the community with that money is amazing there was a wonderful um, charity in Torquay Uh, I'm trying to think his name is Luke wonderful guy and he provides um, care for families with children with terminal illnesses so he'll give them a holiday in Torquay and he wanted to build this lodge and we, we raised a big chunk of money for him to build this lodge so it's things like that beach rescue clubs all that stuff and of course what that does is you know we, we, we don't publicize it we, we you know not I, I was I was one for let's just not you know go out and you know I mean the charities sometimes like to publish it but we publicize it we don't let's just do good stuff yeah. let's just do the right thing and if organization approaches us and says can we do a fundraiser in your restaurant? We say, absolutely fine. Cover the cost of the food and the rest is yours. Yeah. And, you know, and that's how we do it during the winter months so that we're able to allow organisations to use our premises and, and reach to people um, to come along and support charities, which really works. Um, the Seahorse for years, you know, we never publicised it, but we would always open the Seahorse on Christmas Day. And I kind of love, you know, the Christmas carol and, and the thought of feeding people. So we would just open the restaurant and feed all the sort of anyone that didn't have a home or elderly people and cook for them. And it was so satisfying. And, and the rule was we'd never tell anyone about it. Let's just do these really nice things because it's as restaurateurs, it's like it's in us. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing that we, we do, Mark. We don't, we don't really spend money on advertising. We, we'd rather give mm-hmm. uh, marketing sort of budgets and things like that to, to things immediately around each restaurant yeah. and, uh, and connect with the community. And it, it, it's, it's, it works, I think. It's a big thing, and I think, you know, although it's slightly different, but, you know, in terms of when I was at Pret, you know, we didn't like to tell people things. You know, it was just, we'll just do it. And 
mm. if it gets out, great. You know, if people tell each other, but we're not going to hammer home all mm. the individual things that, that we're doing. And I think that that's the that's the best way to do it. From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. The Mark McSee Supersonic Food Marketing Podcast is also brought to you by BDO, the trusted accountancy and advisory firm. As the finance experts in hospitality, BDO have the experience and the insight to provide solid foundations for your business's future growth. BDO really are the go-to team to help your hospitality business succeed. If you're in need of a dedicated transactional team bolstered with corporate finance, audit and tax services, Talk to BDO, who've got the right expertise, knowledge and experience to drive your restaurant or bars business throughout their full life cycle. As thought leaders across the sector, BDO offers commercial and technical updates specifically tailored to restaurants and bars, including their annual hospitality reports. BDO also have a well-established network in the industry that spans across finance directors, suppliers and advisors, and they are always willing to use this to their clients and their contacts' advantage. Get in touch today at bdo.co.uk to chat about how they can help take your hospitality business to the top. And please say that I sent you. And then just thinking about, you know, your, your sort of dream team that you've got. So you've got Will and, uh, you know, you've got Dave. Was John Barnes involved at some point? Yeah, so um, John is still involved. And it was quite oh. interesting. It's, it's, it's another lovely story, actually. Um, Fishworks eventually failed and was sold to uh, Bopperam Ventures. And okay. uh, it was bought out of administration well after, uh, two years after I left. And shortly afterwards, Harry Ramsden's, which was John's business years right. ago, was also sold to Bopperam Ventures. And on the day that it was the day that the um, sale of Harry Ramsons went through, John was dining in the Seahorse with Pat, his wife. And we sat down after dinner and John said to me, because I'd, I'd seen John at a conference years previously. Yeah. And I mean, just thought this guy was so inspirational. We, we, we only just, we sort of kept in touch across the miles, but never really kind of, you know, spent any time together. Yeah. And he said, isn't it strange, Mitch, how the ley lines of life work. And I'm sat in your restaurant on the same day that the guy has acquired both of our old businesses. And I said, it is strange, John. And, um, but here's something, I'm going to open this new business called Rockfish and it's going to be really fantastic. And uh, I'd love you to get involved. And he said, well, I've got grandkids and, you know, I, I, I'm not really, you know, up for it really. Uh, thank you very much for asking. And Rockfish had been open a year and I kept in touch with John. I said, John, I want you to come to Dartmouth and I want you to see Rockfish because I've, I've just, it's brilliant. And I think we can do some really good stuff with it. And John accepted my invitation, came to Dartmouth, and he wandered in and he looked at me and went, oh, my God, this is brilliant. He said, this is fabulous. And he said, yes, I'll, I'll join you. Yes, I'll invest. And uh, Henry Dimbleby was also a great customer of Rockfish at the time, and he also joined. And so with those guys, uh, we started to raise some money and uh, private money from friends and family to sort of grow the business. And uh, I had one of my, my old dear friends from Wynn from Young Seafood who, who, who backed us as well. And then I was, I, I worked for Hawksmoor. Will got me working for uh, Hawksmoor about five years ago or more when we opened Air Street. So I was doing all the seafood consultancy there and training their guys and, um, you know, doing the seafood menus. And we were at a away day in um, Boomshead Farm. Um, and there's sort of exec chef team from Hawksmoor there that we were, we were just playing around with new, new thoughts and ideas. 
And I'd said to Will, look, I, I'm looking for a chairman. I really think I'm onto something with Rockfish. And I, you know, I'd really like someone to join. And uh, Will was sort of going to put his mind to it. And, and at, at Coombs Head, he said to me, look, I've been thinking about it. And I'd love to do it. How do you feel about that? And uh, so we talked about it. And um, Will joined us. And I, th- I think I, it feels like forever. But I, but I think it's probably four years or something, five years. It's been quite some time. And that was our board. And then, then we recruited a, a, a finance, a guy who had huge experience in finance, who was a shareholder as well, who joined our board. Um, and he's been great. And he has mentored my finance director, Nick, over the last three years, uh, four years Nick's been on. Nick is just a, an amazing guy and, and has really, you know, accelerated. And, and, you know, one of the most brilliant hires I've ever made. You know, if there's any advice I could give anyone that's growing a business is get a finance guy. And uh, I I remember interviewing and thinking, oh, I can't afford this money. You know, where am I going to find this extra money from? But it just worked. It was just brilliant. Now Nick is my eight o'clock call every morning and everything we do, we we speak on. So that was how that was how the team came together. And Will is a brilliant leader, a brilliant, you know, we have a great CEO. We have an amazing friendship, but a great CEO chairman relationship. And and it's a good study in how that that actually that relationship works and how important it is. and, and the rest of my board are just just brilliant. And, and again, putting a board, you know, I've had boards in the past where they just don't work. When you get a board together that works, it's it's a powerful stuff, really powerful stuff. Well, there's a couple of things, and then I'll need to let you go and get on your life. So um, obviously, you know, the people side of things is super important to you. Um, and you've built like a really strong culture and, and people policy and things like that. And, you know, there's a couple of cool things that have been talked about. So the staff benefits like, no more than 40 hours per week um, and paid overtime if you work that and things like that. So where did all these things come from? You know, is it something you wanted to pass on or, you know, it was a strategic move or what was going on there? A couple of years, we were sort of um, thinking about hiring and, you know, we could put an advert anywhere and suddenly you, you wouldn't get anyone to, to work for you. And when I looked around at the business, the, the key performers were people that were close to you that worked ridiculous hours that weren't really getting much of a life, but they were, they were your generals. And that's how traditionally I think um, businesses have been, you know, built in the past. I mean, Matt and I would do 100 hours a week and think nothing of it, and it was fairly normal. But as you get older, you realise it's it's abnormal. And we thought, how can, how can we create an environment where the culture of this business is uh, such an amazing place to work? It's fair, it's enjoyable. There's loads of benefits to it, and actually, there were people queuing up outside to get into this place because it's not like any other place. So we started up a uh, we we wrote a people strategy of what we really wanted it to be like to work at Rockfish. My sister, who was um, at Fishworks uh, as a general manager, who then progressed on to be their HR person for a number of years, um, moved here and joined the company as well. So it was, it was great to have somebody in charge of executing that whole strategy from training to benefits to paddleboard clubs that we have, buying paddleboards and putting them in every restaurant, getting people out on the water, um, just really creating um, a family you know, but not in the kind of corny sense of the word. Right. And and actually, we, we try and employ family where we can. I've got lots of family in the business, so is Matt, so is Kirk, our exec chef. And, and I think it's great. And now we kind of look at saying, well, one of the things that I really like to talk about is, does anyone know anyone in their family that would like to work for us? Yeah. And I love the idea that there are small groups of families within the company benefiting and enjoying and feeling like they're part of stuff. Yeah. And uh, And as we... As we progress into the next stage of the, of, of the business, I like to feel that you know we're not just in a com- we're not here to amass wealth. We're here to 
make a difference to get people to eat amazing seafood and accessible and affordable, get their families together talking, giving them a place to go, focus their holidays and stuff that does in the community and, and thinking beyond. Can we, how can we do something for the marine environment, our local places? How, how can we do that to really make it, make it kind of work? And I think we can. And then future stuff then, you know, two things you was thinking about was adapting for uh, tourists. You know, a lot of people are going to the coast, so you've probably seen a bit of an, an uptick maybe and, and lots of people coming down. Are you having to adapt much for that? And then the second thing was plans for diversification. So, you know, to have more than one hook on the on the cliff face, as it were, you know, nationwide deliveries and all these different things, you know, what, what's the plans there? Well, I think that the, um, you know, Dave has been a big advocate and COVID gave us a real good opportunity and Dave has been a big advocate of simplification and talking to me about, you know, why do we, why do we offer customers 16 wines and eight beers? Mm. Why do we, uh, why do we have nine starters and 15 main courses? What, you know, all the, all the questions that Dave answered me and, and the honest answer was, I don't know, Dave, we've just always done that and we think it's the right thing to do. So during COVID, we decided we wanted to have, we had no idea of the period we were entering into. So we simplified things. We shortened the inventory of wines and beers. We um, shortened the menu. Um, we did a few controversial things like replaced homemade chip, handmade chips with fries, which has been a disaster in, in, a, in a lot of places. But, you know, it's sort of, sort of, it's taught us something. And we put menus on tablecloths rather than handing people menus. And, you know, it's been incredible, the effect of that in terms of, how, you know, we, we don't, we haven't needed as much labour to actually execute that kind of, smaller business we've had people um working less hours um we i mean the whole thing has been been, been pretty transformational so we've, we've kind of gone into this you know how can we do rockfish as good but simpler model to operate for the future so that's been that's that's been really amazing and and, and, a, and a great thing during uh, during this period um i think going forward we started looking at you know we're a fish business. We just happen to sell fish through restaurants. Yeah. And the old way of growing a restaurant group would have been to like add restaurants to what you're doing. And then we end up in the same position as we started this whole conversation of at restaurant 38, who on earth is Mitch? Yeah. You know, it just becomes a kind of, you know, the batter's greasy. It's a chippy. It's got no point to it. So we're still working out what horizons are, but we also think that we've now got access through our own fish company and we've got daily distribution going to the restaurants that, we're going back to where I started in opening a fish market in um, Brixham. So we're going to start selling the fish that we sell. And then what we're going to do is we're going to offer people a chance on, on the web that when you book a table at, say, Rockfish Pool, um, you'll get an email saying, thanks for your reservation. Do you want fish to pick up while you're here? And here's, to, here's, here's the list of fish that's available. So I'll have some turbot, I'll have some lobsters, I'll have some oysters. You click it, you pay for it. You will arrive at the restaurant and have your meal and then somebody give you a call back for your fish to take home. So we think that, each restaurant is is really a, a fishmonger without having a fishmonger, yeah. and uh, and then of course what we'll do is we'll send we'll work that out and we'll extend that to national delivery and barbecue boxes and so forth. So I'm I'm looking around for somebody to kind of head up that whole uh, whole division, which would be uh, be quite interesting. That's really exciting. <laughs> um, and then a couple of things to say that video you did uh, talking people through rockfish and uh, you know what was brilliant absolutely brilliant you know it was so well done we're, we're, we're believers in you know being honest and open i think the only way that you can tell people is how it is and i and i think we realized you know we're 
we're already looking at the next stages of, you know, is there anything else we can do to make people feel even more secure as we move into uh, the winter months? And I think uh, we, we don't want to wait till we're mandated. We'll probably just jump ahead and do a whole lot more stuff that will just make people feel that those guys have got it covered. And and we were surprised, actually, because I, I, w- I was sort of saying to the guys, my, my head was in my hand saying, oh, we can't have masks. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm worried that we're going to have screens. It's not going to be hospitality. I mean, it was my biggest fear. Yeah. And so our whole task was, how do we do hospitality? And how do we cover the COVID stuff without anybody knowing? Let's make masks invisible was, was the mantra that, uh, that I had. And, and we did it. And we, we, you know, lots of our customers written to us saying, and it's cost us loads of money. You know, we've got people constantly cleaning the COVID monitor, as we call them. They're, they're, just, they're just around the place marshalling it and cleaning. But you know what? It, we've also learned that why wouldn't we not have that in the future anyway? Yeah. Some yeah. of these things are just really good things to have. And now we've got sparkling building the whole time. Why, why, why would we just let the place, you know, build up, get grubby over service? Let's, let's clean it during service. Let's people know that the standards are this high. So it's been, it's been really interesting, Mark. Yeah, no, it was it was brilliant. I shared that far and wide, and then lots of other people got involved sharing it as well. So, and you know, I sending it to clients, saying, "You know, this is this is what good looks like." So, quick fire final questions: best yeah. city to eat in? Well, I, I'd, I'd have to say London because it's it's probably where I've had. Uh, I mean, I love to go to Singapore, and I love Asia, and I, I, you know, all that stuff is great. But I think what's amazing about London is that. You've just got so much diversity, and I, I, every time I eat in restaurants up there, I, I, you know, last couple of days eating old favourites I haven't been to for years are just fantastic. The diversity of London is fantastic, and we've got some amazing chefs and restaurateurs there. And best restaurant apart from your own? Best restaurant apart from my own? Well, the, you know, the one that I enjoyed recently, I thought the cooking was fantastic, was La Petite Maison. Uh-huh. And uh, is, you know, it's a bit of a fancy restaurant and, you know, diverse sort of range of clients in there but the food is executed so well and uh, and the other place that I also love and that for the cooking and the ambience because it just reminds me of what a true spirit of a restaurant is is the dining room above the French house and the Borthwick cooking oh yeah you've got a you know a chef patron who is cooking and coming down into the dining room and cooking with like serious integrity I mean the boy is an, you know he's an amazing chef and uh, so those two places for me would that's it you know wonderful Best dish? I'm going to say the veal chop at the Putty Maison is just, you know, I had it again every time I eat it. I think it's just the best, you know, it's just the right amount of smokiness cooked over fire, a nice little yogurt marinade with it. It's just, it's really, it's just fabulous. But then after that, actually, I went to uh, Chano Bella and had the um, spaghetti al cartocho with seafood. And, you know, you eat those, eat in those places that just stood the test of time. Brilliant cooking, great seafood. Loved it. Best pub? Probably has to be the French house. I love drinking in the French house. Yeah, yeah. And best drink, what's your go-to? My go-to drink is Armagnac. Um, yeah, as soon as, uh, although I've been good lately, but, you know, almost as soon as I wake up, have a coffee and an Armagnac in the morning and, uh, you know, first restaurant or market I go to, that'd be my, that's my, that's my breakfast. <laughs> nice. Okay, well, listen, I'll love you and leave you. And thanks so much for all your time today. And it's just been thanks nice to meet you and nice to meet you. And I'm sure we'll see you at some point, get a wee drink in, a wee dram. We definitely will do that, Mark. We'll, have, we'll share an Armagnac and, uh, and we'll share some uh, grilled fish. And thanks very much for chatting to me on the show. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care, Mitch. Yeah. Good luck. Bye-bye. Bye. Round of applause, I think, for Mitch on that one. I think that's one of the best episodes I've ever done. And it's only because of the guests. So he was absolutely brilliant. I could have talked to him for hours and hours. So thanks to Mitch for being on. Please check out Rockfish 
or the Seahorse if you're down on the south coast and give it a wee look out. And also big thanks to Dave Strauss for hooking us up in the first place, a new friend of the show as well. Thanks so much for listening and subscribing, also sharing, rating and reviewing, and also for everyone that gets in touch every week. It's just a real pleasure. It just still gives me a buzz that people are actually listening out there. So thanks to everyone that takes the time to stick me in their ears. It's very, very much appreciated. Huge thanks to Engage Interactive for being our headline sponsors. Again, if you do need anything digital at all, from social to apps to CRM to advertising, anything like that, do get in touch with Alex there and he will sort you out. Also, a huge thanks to BDO, who are our premium partners all the way since Series 1. Huge thanks to them. If you need anything financial, financial guidance, mergers and acquisitions, stuff like that, get in touch with BDO. And if you ask for Peter Hemmington, that is the go-to guy. Thanks to Gaz and Gabby for putting the podcast together as ever. Huge effort from them, so thank you. So this is me, Mark McSee, signing off. Bless you, thanks for listening. And I hope that this episode has given you some real value that will help your brand boom.